Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. For me, a great British castle is a fortress, a palace, a home. And a symbol of power, majesty, and fear. For nearly a thousand years, castles have shaped Britain's famous landscape. These magnificent buildings have been home to some of the greatest heroes and villains in our national history. And many of them still stand proudly today, bursting with incredible stories of warfare, treachery, intrigue, passion and murder. Join me, Dan Jones, as I uncover the secrets behind six great British castles. This time I'm in Leeds Castle, not the Leeds in Yorkshire, this one's in Kent. It's been called the loveliest castle in England, but scratch that perfect surface and you'll discover its darker side. Leeds Castle might look pretty and genteel, but its history certainly isn't for the faint-hearted. For hundreds of years, building a castle was the ultimate macho statement. Big and aggressive, castles usually bristle with historical testosterone. But not this one. Leeds Castle has seen its fair share of war and terror, but it holds a fascinating secret. Because its history has mostly been shaped not by men, but by women. There's been a castle here at Leeds for nearly 900 years, but what you see today is largely the work of one woman, Olive Lady Bailey, the daughter of an English baron and a wealthy American heiress. Lady Bailey was one of the great hostesses of her age. She bought Leeds Castle in 1926 and turned it into one of the most glamorous party houses in England. Her guests included the controversial heir to the British throne, Edward Duke of Windsor, and his wife, Wallace Simpson. Movie stars like Charlie Chaplin and Jimmy Stewart. The great Winston Churchill and even James Bond creator Ian Fleming. During the 1930s, they enjoyed lavish dinners and parties, played tennis and croquet, 
and even swam in a pool with its own wave machine. But there was far more to Leeds than banquets and blowouts, and the castle's charmed life was about to change dramatically. When the Second World War broke out in 1939, Leeds Castle became a secret centre of British military research. Now, instead of parties, there were flamethrowers being tested on the lawn to prepare to defend England against Nazi invasion. It's that play-hard, fight-hard mentality that summed up this castle throughout the ages. From the outside, it's beautiful. Glamorous, feminine even. But beneath that veneer, it's no stranger to menace and violence. Britain, of course, has another famous Leeds in Yorkshire. Here in Kent, the name comes from the old English word Helida, which means a babbling stream. The first castle built on this site around the year 1100 was the work of a Norman knight with the impossibly romantic name of Robert de Crevecoeur, or Robert the Brokenhearted. Sitting on three small islands in an artificial lake formed by the River Len, it really is a masterful piece of medieval engineering to manipulate the natural power of the river into a man-made moat. And it means Leeds Castle is cunningly defended by water on every side. Sadly, Robert the Brokenhearted went broke and had to sell up. Much later, in 1278, the castle was purchased by the Queen of England, Edward I's Spanish wife, Eleanor. It was the start of a long royal association. Queen Eleanor, or Eleanor of Castile, was a successful businesswoman and a property magnate in her own right. And under her instruction, the king's engineers began substantial alterations to the castle. With the moat and the barbican providing defences, the rest of the castle was free to be an elegant home for a very impressive queen. Eleanor extended the castle on the smaller island and called it her Gloriette, the name of a fantasy tower in a popular 12th century poem. In Eleanor's time, it would have been a single-storied structure around a courtyard with timber walls and a leaded roof, a main hall, a banqueting hall, and apartments. But it wasn't just the decor Eleanor was interested in. She also brought new European notions about personal hygiene at a time when most English lords and ladies were not so big on washing. 13th century documents record the building of the Queen's Baths here at Leeds, and archaeologists have now found the baths in what was once thought to be a boathouse. So originally, this would have been one of the earliest English bathhouses that was built, and it was built by Eleanor of Castile towards the end of the 13th century. It would have been lined with Reigate stone tiles. It would have been seriously opulent. It may even have been fed by piped water. Eleanor sounds like a lover of luxury, is that fair? Absolutely. She was famous for having glazed windows and carpets in her rooms. It actually caused a lot of controversy because it was seen as a bit too luxurious, not, not quite the done thing. She also owned forks in a period when nobody ate with forks. Eleanor travelled constantly with her husband because she hated being separated from him. And they obviously had a good time on the road. 
because whenever she returned to Leeds Castle, she was expecting yet another baby. She was almost constantly pregnant, wasn't she? She was. We know of at least 16 children. Most of them didn't survive to adulthood, but she was basically pregnant for most of the years of her marriage, which eventually came to undermine her health. Eleanor died at the age of 49 after 36 years of marriage. Leeds Castle passed back into the hands of her husband, King Edward I, but not for long. After mourning Eleanor for several years, the 60-year-old king married again. His new wife was the King of France's sister, Princess Margaret. She was 17, and people called her the Flower of the French. In 1299, Edward and his new teenage wife, Margaret, spent their honeymoon here at Leeds. And just a few weeks later, the king gave Margaret a very special gift, the castle itself. She was getting one of the finest royal residences in England. Leeds Castle's association with England's queens gave it a reputation as an idyllic pleasure palace. But that was all about to change, as the castle was thrust into one of the bloodiest rebellions of the Middle Ages. At the heart of it all was one of the most unpopular and spiteful kings in British history. During the 13th century, Leeds Castle had been run as a palace by two wives of Edward I. But when Edward's son, Edward II, came to the throne, he proved to be a big letdown. Thanks to him, Leeds would become embroiled in one of the bloodiest rebellions of the entire Middle Ages. Edward II was one of the most useless and unpopular kings of the Middle Ages. He was thrashed in battle by the Scots, and he infuriated the English barons with his outrageous favouritism towards a handful of intimate friends. But he was still the king, and if you crossed him, things turned very nasty very quickly. One of Edward's most trusted favourites was a talented knight and politician called Bartholomew Badlesmere. He came from the village of Badlesmere, just a few miles away from Leeds Castle, and he made a stellar career for himself in royal service. He fought in foreign wars, he put down Welsh rebellions, he even went to Rome to talk to the Pope on behalf of the King. In return for all that loyal service, Edward made Badlesmere rich, and one of the prizes he rewarded him with was Leeds Castle, which Badlesmere received in 1318. But that was where all his problems began. In 1321, just three years after Badlesmere was given Leeds Castle, a rebellion broke out against the king. Many of his barons protested against the growing influence of one of the king's favourites, the ruthless Hugh Dispenser. Dispenser was a major rival to Badlesmere at court. After much agonising, Badlesmere decided to join the rebellion against the king. It was the wrong choice. Edward II was enraged at Badlesmere's disloyalty. He ordered him to hand Leeds Castle back to the crown. Badlesmere refused. Instead, he fled to join up with other rebels in Oxford. He left Leeds Castle under the command of his wife, Margaret. Once again, a woman was in control. 
The king responded immediately, but curiously, instead of handling the matter himself, he sent his wife, Queen Isabella, to do his dirty work. A devious plan was underway. In early October 1321, Queen Isabella rode up to the gates of Leeds Castle and asked Margaret Badlesmere to let her in. She said she'd been on pilgrimage to Canterbury, just down the road, and she needed somewhere to rest. But Margaret only had to take one look to see that that wasn't true. For a start, Isabella was backed up by a posse of heavily armed royal soldiers. She hadn't exactly popped round for tea and biscuits. Since Margaret's husband was in rebellion against the king, and he told her to keep the castle safe, she refused to let the queen in. It must have been a very tense standoff. Then, in the heat of the moment, the soldiers within the castle started shooting a volley of arrows. In the skirmish that followed, several of the queen's men were killed. Now, this looked very bad, but actually, it's what Edward II had wanted all along. Shooting arrows at my wife. Now he had the perfect excuse to humiliate Badlesmere for abandoning him. On the 23rd of October 1321, Edward sent an army to besiege Leeds Castle. And this time, the king led the siege himself. Faced with overwhelming odds, it took just a week for Leeds Castle to cave in. Margaret surrendered, hoping for mercy. But Edward II wasn't feeling merciful. He put 13 of the castle's garrison to death. Margaret and her children were all packed off to the Tower of London to be imprisoned at the king's pleasure. In April 1322, Badlesmere himself was captured. He was dragged through the streets of Canterbury behind a horse. Then he was hanged and finally beheaded, with his head displayed over one of the city's gates as a warning to other would-be rebels. With Badlesmere dead and his wife Margaret in the tower, Leeds Castle was confiscated by the Crown. But ultimately, it wouldn't be Edward II who enjoyed it. It would be the woman whose deviousness had helped capture it. Queen Isabella. By 1326, England was fed up to the back teeth with Edward II. He'd made enemies of almost everyone, including his wife. Along with her lover, a baron called Roger Mortimer, Queen Isabella raised an army against her useless husband. She captured him and forced him to abdicate the crown, and eventually had him murdered. Along with her newfound power, royal records from the 1320s show that Queen Isabella now began building up her property portfolio and her dower, effectively her pension. It says here she's increasing her dower from 4,500 marks to 20,000 marks. That's a huge increase. It's like going from £2 million to £10 million today. And she's laying claim to lands and castles in Norfolk, Suffolk, Leicestershire, and we can see here the castle and manor of Leeds. Isabella's links with Leeds would last for the rest of her life. 
She was still holding the castle on her death in 1358, aged 66. It was a fitting home for a woman who toppled a king. In all, some six queens of England have claimed or been gifted Leeds Castle. At the end of the 14th century, Richard II gave it to his wife, Anne of Bohemia. A few years later, King Henry IV gave it to his second wife, the French Duchess Joan of Navarre. But for Joan, Leeds Castle would not only be her home, it would also be her prison. Joan of Navarre was the wealthiest woman in England, but she had one big problem, her stepson, King Henry V. Henry spent his whole reign fighting a ruinously expensive war against France, and when it came to raising war funds, no one was off limits. So in 1419, he accused his wealthy stepmother of witchcraft, confiscated her lands and possessions and had her imprisoned at a series of castles, including her own home here at Leeds. Joan was accused of using sorcery and necromancy, which meant using magic and communicating with the dead. As it turned out, she was never even tried. It would have been a royal scandal if she were found guilty, and acquittal would have forced Henry to return her money. So he just kept her locked up. For four years, Joan was kept here as the royal witch. If you want some kind of proof that all of this was basically a sham to help pay for the king's wars in France, you just have to look at the accounts for Joan's imprisonment. She had a stable, horses, 19 grooms. She had a constant stream of guests. One of them even stayed for nine months, and there were bills for a birdcage and the repair of a harp. It wasn't easy being a witch. Eventually, Henry had his stepmother released, quietly, as if the entire episode had never happened. But Joan wasn't the only witch to be imprisoned in Leeds Castle. Within 20 years, this place would be a prison for a much more devious and cunning woman who was married to an eminent duke. Her name was Eleanor Cobham. For me, Eleanor Cobham is one of the most intriguing women in British history. Her husband was Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, uncle to the useless and idiotic King Henry VI. Humphrey was the power behind the throne, but more importantly, while Henry was childless, Humphrey was also his heir. If anything should happen to Henry, Humphrey would become king and Eleanor would become queen. And it's that fact that got Eleanor into so much trouble. In the summer of 1440, Eleanor decided to have her fortune told. She went to the best astrologers of the day, her personal physician, Thomas Southwell, and a brilliant Oxford scholar called Roger Bolingbroke. The reading they gave her was explosive. According to the horoscope, the king was due to fall ill and die in July or August of the next year. Eleanor's husband would inherit the throne and she would be queen. It was such a breathtaking prediction that news of it began to spread around the country. When news of Eleanor's fortune-telling reached the king, he was deeply troubled. 
this fatal illness was due to strike within months. The king's advisers then commissioned a second horoscope that conveniently rubbished Eleanor's claims. Then they had her and her astrologers arrested, locked up in Leeds Castle and questioned. She'd messed with the most important man in the land, the king himself. And while she was here, the charges kept on mounting up. She was accused of having consulted a witch called Marjorie Jordmain, who'd given her a potion to help her conceive a child. Things weren't looking good for Eleanor Cobham. Ronald Hutton is one of Britain's leading experts in witchcraft and folklore. Ronald, today we think about horoscopes as mumbo-jumbo. It's a best a bit of fun. Was it like that in the 15th century? In the 15th century, horoscopes looked like the science of the future. So top astrologers were rather like nuclear physicists in the 1930s. They could really have been onto something. Eleanor was supposed to have been involved in, on the one hand, astrology, divining the future. But on the other hand, she was accused of trying to procure love potions. Can you give me an example of a spell or a, an incantation from the yeah. time? Uh, this is a spell to Venus. That's why it's an effigy in green wax. It's actually you because it's got your hair in it. It's to enable you to be even more attractive to audiences, which uh, I think most presenters would wish. Venus, known as the lady, nourishing one, gorgeous one, queen of beauty, giver of sweet madness, treasure made flesh. Bless this man. Hear him. Heal him. Hold him. I feel better already. You look it. Thank you. <laughs> Do you think Eleanor Cobham was guilty? We'll never know. Framing political opponents by charging them with working magic is a favourite trick of the French and English royal families on either side of 1400. Eleanor Cobham was charged with 18 counts of treasonable necromancy, conjuring up the spirits of the dead in order to influence future events. And she was imprisoned in Leeds Castle to await her trial. Eleanor must have been terrified by the dreadful punishments handed out to her accomplices. Roger Bolingbroke, a highly respected academic, was hanged, drawn and quartered. The physician, Southwell, was lucky to die in the Tower of London before meeting the same fate. And the witch, Marjorie Jordemain, was sentenced to be burned alive. This was a particularly ghastly way to go, tied to a stake and surrounded by wood and fuel which was then set alight. Eleanor herself was spared, but humiliated. She was forcibly divorced from her husband. She was made to walk barefoot through the crowded streets of London, carrying a lighted taper to signify her penance, a ritual usually reserved for common prostitutes. And then she was sentenced to life imprisonment finally ending up 300 miles away at Beaumaris Castle in Wales, where she would die, her life and her reputation utterly destroyed. Fortunately, not everyone's experience of Leeds Castle was as harrowing as Eleanor's. In fact, the 16th century would see the castle transformed for the arrival of Britain's most famous king on his way to the Tudor version of a rock festival.
When Henry VIII stopped by, he came with an entourage of thousands, and Leeds Castle would have to be ready. During the Middle Ages, a succession of English queens had turned Leeds Castle in Kent into an impressive and well-maintained royal residence and an occasional prison. But by the 16th century, the castle had been ignored by the crown for decades and had fallen into disrepair. The arrival of the Tudor dynasty signalled a revival in the fortunes of Leeds Castle, which is apt because the Tudor royal line may literally have been conceived here. The Tudors are the most famous and notorious dynasty in British royal history, including big names like Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. But this family actually had quite humble and very illicit beginnings, probably in this castle. <laughs> Those beginnings go back to one of the many queens to occupy Leeds Castle, Catherine de Valois, the wife of King Henry V. When Henry V died of dysentery in 1422, he left Catherine a widow at the age of 20. Their only child, the son and heir to the throne, was just nine months old. Catherine's main responsibility was to raise the infant king, but that didn't take up all her time. One member of the Queen's household particularly caught her eye. He was a dashing Welsh squire by the name of Owen at Meredith at Tudor, or Owen Tudor. Catherine and Owen began an affair which produced at least three sons. To prevent this scandal from becoming public knowledge, they spent their time away from the court at London at more discreet castles like this one in Leeds. After all, where better than an island fortress in the Kent countryside to keep a scandalous liaison from public gaze? Owen and Catherine's marriage might have been a guilty secret at the time, but it would go on to shape British history, because their eldest son was the father of Henry VII, the first Tudor king and the man who established the Tudor royal dynasty. In 1520, the secret lovers Catherine and Owen's great-grandson, King Henry VIII, planned a historic meeting with the French king, Francis I. And as part of this road trip, the king and his queen, Catherine of Aragon, would be stopping off at Leeds Castle, a kind of medieval motorway services. But it would be no ordinary stay. Henry's ultimate destination was France, for an event that would be a bit like the Olympics crossed with a G20 summit crossed with Glastonbury. The idea was that Henry and the French king Francis I would gather together their diplomatic corps and their whole courts and have a party featuring pageantry, music and sport. Most famously, Henry and Francis had a personal wrestling match, which Francis actually won. These were two of the greatest kings in Europe trying to outdo each other and all camping under tents made of gold cloth. Hence the name given to this gathering, the Field of the Cloth of Gold. 
Now, obviously, Henry and his court needed to get there. And this painting on display at the banqueting hall in Leeds Castle gives you a sense of the scale of the travelling circus. It's showing Henry's ships leaving Dover. I think there are about 27 of them. And right in the middle is Henry's flagship. That's the ship that Henry and his Queen Catherine of Aragon would have travelled on. But more than that, you get a sense of the sheer numbers of people bustling around. Most of those people would have stayed right here at Leeds Castle. More than 5,000 of them. Since 1517, Henry had been ordering major works on Leeds Castle, making it the perfect palatial pit stop for a king and queen en route to France. An upper story was added to the small Gloriette, with new apartments including a bedchamber and a bathroom. This new floor was exclusively reserved for the Queen and her closest household staff. The Maiden's Tower was built especially to accommodate the Queen's ladies-in-waiting. Catherine's total entourage added up to 1,200 staff and 800 horses. The more I look at this painting, the more I feel almost overwhelmed by the opulence of Henry's court. The ships, the money, the people, the fine clothes. I think more than anything else, it tells you about the sheer extravagance of kingship in the 16th century. Maybe it's thanks to paintings like this one, but the Tudors are remembered for their conspicuous consumption. Good old Henry liked his dinner. A feast fit for this king included soup, herring, cod, pike, salmon, haddock, porpoise, seal, lobsters, custard tart, fritters and fruit. And that was just the first course. At Hampton Court Palace, there's a replica of the massive wine fountain Henry took to the field of cloth of gold. They also have a working Tudor kitchen. I've come here to meet an expert in Tudor cooking, Mark Meltonville. So we know when the Tudor court came to Leeds Castle that there were hundreds, thousands of people and they got through a huge amount of food. Was this typical of the Tudor court? That's the whole point. Uh, the court consumes conspicuously. What you do is everything on a large scale. You're, you are the king, you are the whole country moving. And so everything that you do has to be fantastic, the best of the best. So you bring in spices, you bring in things from everywhere. Food miles are really important in Tudor diets. The further the better. And there's a kind of showiness about food at the Tudor court. Well, you don't get much more showy than the peacock there. An exotic Asian bird, which you could have just roasted or boiled. No one knows it's a peacock if you do that. How do you let them know it's a peacock? Well, the recipe says to skin it, but don't pluck it first. So lift the whole skin off, feathers and all. Wow. You slowly roast the bird, and when he's done, on the plate, lay the skin and feathers back on, dress it up as if it looks like it's alive, bring it into the hall. It's all about having the things that other people can't. At the end of the day, it tastes not much different to chicken. <laughs> and he's got, of course, in his kitchen, beef roasting on a spit, just as we've got over here. Yeah, you don't just boil something in a pot. You use a ton of oak just to roast some meat up for people. This fireplace, one of Henry's original ones, just like the one you see in the tents in the field of cloth of gold, 
huge spits covered in meat. This is the best way of treating fresh meat. A good spit turner will turn at the right speed to keep all the juices in the meat, to make it tender and juicy. Okay, juice into the meat. I think we should stop talking and try some of this. Wow, that looks amazing. So there we are, royal roast beef. It smells delicious. Mmm, really good. Really good, yeah. It's a little custard tart. Mm -hmm. It's got dates in, but it's been made green with parsley. And the base of the pastry is sweetened with marrowbone. With marrowbone? Mmm. It's actually quite sweet, particularly with the dates, but then you can really taste the parsley mm. in there, which is a kind of weird combination. That actually looks very appetising. This, I don't want to offend you, is less pleasant looking. What is this? That, uh, the name of it in the recipe book is arbalettes or arbalettes, and it's a cream and egg and cheese mix. It doesn't look very good because it's split, it's curdled. <laughs> Smells cheesy. Mm. But actually... I mean, it's a very strange kind of sensation, mm. you know, it is lumpy and, and sort of watery at the same time, but it tastes quite nice. It's got a kind of depth of flavour, it's quite savoury. Well, eat that with a big hunk of bread, mm. mug of beer, I think we're going to be okay. Now I'm sold. <laughs> now I'm sold. You should have done that to start with. So really, all of this isn't just about eating well, having delicious food. It's about status. It's about sending a message that I am the king and this is my world. It's more than just the king. It's the message about your country. It's I am England. We are great. Look at what I provide just for my court. It must be so special. I must be in charge. Amazing. Thank you, Mark. As Henry VIII's love life became increasingly complicated, the tradition of Leeds Castle being given to a queen ended. In 1552, after 300 years of royal ownership, the castle was granted to a trusted knight, Sir Anthony St. Ledger, for helping to quell an uprising in Ireland. His rent was just £10 per year. From then on, this perfect, pretty castle changed hands at least five times, but remained in private ownership, for better or worse. Over time, the Gloriette fell into ruin. Most of the medieval buildings were demolished in the 17th century. This building, called the New Castle, only dates from the early 1800s. This was the era of the stately home, when a castle like Leeds no longer needed to be a fortress, but a celebration of aristocracy and wealth, if you had it. It goes without saying, you need vast amounts of money to maintain a place like this. Leeds Castle has brought plenty of families to the brink of bankruptcy. In the early 1920s, it was up for sale again, this time to pay for death taxes. And it was in a pretty bad state. Whole sections of the castle were lying empty, and thousands of acres of parkland had been neglected. Its heyday as the playground of kings and queens had become a distant memory. But another golden age was about to dawn. The future was new money from the new world, American dollars. Leeds Castle had found what it always needed, another strong lady. 
a wealthy Anglo-American heiress looking for the ultimate fixer-upper. She decided this would probably do. Her name was Olive Paget, though by her third marriage she'd gained the more glamorous title Lady Bailey. Under her ownership, Leeds Castle would be back to its magnificent best. But darker times were also on the horizon, as the castle took on a key role in Britain's fight against the Nazis, in a mission straight out of the pages of a James Bond story. Leeds Castle had been a playground for medieval queens, an occasional prison, and a pleasure palace for the great Tudor monarch Henry VIII. In the 20th century, it was transformed again under a new owner, the wealthy Anglo-American heiress Olive Paget, or as she became known, Lady Bailey. You know, the more I learn about Olive Paget, the more I like her. She was born in America, educated in Paris, and volunteered as a nurse during the First World War. She married a war hero and had two daughters, then divorced. She married again the same year, and the happy couple bought Leeds Castle. Now, she divorced again, but she kept the castle. After that divorce, she married Sir Adrian Bailey, which gained her the title Lady Bailey. She turned what had been a tumble-down wreck into a fairy tale stately home. She didn't just have the taste, she had the money. She'd buy exotic birds on her travels and fly them home first class. Llamas and zebras were bought and allowed to roam freely around the grounds. It was all simply marvelous. Lady Bailey worked closely with a famous interior designer, Stéphane Boudin who went on to create the French rooms at the White House for Jacqueline Kennedy during the 1960s. In the 50 years that Lady Bailey owned this place, Leeds became one of the greatest castles in Britain, and she was renowned for her parties. The guest lists included politicians and diplomats, actors and musicians, socialites and royalty from across Europe. Lady Bailey employed a permanent staff of 40 to maintain the daily life of her castle. Not as many as the 5,000 that followed Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, but still pretty impressive. She also developed friendships with powerful political figures like future Prime Ministers Winston Churchill and Anthony Eden, ambassadors and high-ranking civil servants. Her reputation as a discreet and charming hostess meant she frequently had the ear and the undivided attention of important men. Then, in 1939, World War II broke out and the party stopped. Leeds Castle had to adapt to the times. Lady Bailey moved her whole family and her household here into the Gloriette. Outside, the moat was drained to prevent reflection on the water from attracting the Luftwaffe's bombs. Then Lady Bailey did something unexpected and incredibly patriotic. She gave over Leeds to the war effort. The new castle, her own home, became an emergency hospital. 
The Battle of Britain began in the summer of 1940, and much of the fighting took place in these skies above Kent. And here's a quote from Pauline, one of Lady Bailey's daughters. She said, we could watch dogfights in the air, and sometimes we'd search for Nazi pilots who'd been shot down. I remember I'd take a pitchfork and wondered what in the world I'd do if I ever found one. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. To help deal with casualties, the castle was taken over by the Army Medical Corps, who used this room as an operating theatre for the wounded. The castle was also used for the rehabilitation of badly burned airmen who were treated by the pioneering plastic surgeon Archie Mackindo. He saved the lives of countless pilots and those who benefited from his skills and his treatments were known as the guinea pig club. By the end of the war there were 649 members. But Leeds Castle was much more than just a makeshift hospital. Among Lady Bailey's collection of famous and powerful friends were David Margeson, the Secretary of State for War, and Geoffrey Lloyd, the head of the Petroleum Warfare Department, a secret government agency set up to develop deadly new weapons to defend Britain from Nazi invasion. Because they were such good friends, and probably because Geoffrey Lloyd knew he could trust Lady Bailey's absolute loyalty and discretion, she allowed him to test petroleum warfare weapons on the castle lawns. Petroleum warfare was very new and very deadly. Weapons range from burning roadblocks to raging seas full of burning oil to simply handheld flamethrowers that could be fired down foxholes, into trenches or directly at troops. When these were demonstrated to admirals and generals, they were usually as appalled as they were amazed. But Churchill was impressed and he wrote as much in a letter to the team at Leeds. There must be no faltering in the drive to nurture in the British people, by all possible means, the virtues of skills and inventiveness. These are the true characteristics of a virile nation in a technological age. The castle survived the war without being damaged, although bombs were dropped on the castle grounds, apparently killing one of Lady Bailey's llamas. In 1974, Lady Bailey died, but she wanted Leeds Castle to live on, and she left behind a trust and £1.4 million to make sure it remained a living, vibrant castle. 
Calling Leeds Castle the loveliest castle in England actually does it a major disservice because beneath that undoubted beauty, there's a core as hard as those stone walls. This is a castle that's been shaped by strong women and it's played a full and fearsome role in the political and military history of our nation. Next time, I'm in Lancaster Castle. Not just a fortress, but a prison. With an 800-year history of crime, punishment, and torture. From witchcraft trials to one of the worst miscarriages of justice in the 20th century. From soap wars to a young Simon Cowell, it really is the best of bad TV, the 80s, brand new at 10 tonight. Right after a record-breaking structure that changed engineering forever, we're exploring the Humber Bridge, one of Britain's greatest bridges, new and next. <laughs>